Could family genetics be a reason that no matter what we try, we still can't lose the fat and inches from our problem areas? To learn more, we spoke to Dr. Brian Strand from Sonobello. While some people can eat everything and stay thin, others diet and exercise daily and still pack on fat and inches to their problem areas. It's not your fault. It can be genetics. If you struggle to lose the fat from your tummy, love handles, thighs, and back, you're likely battling your family genetics. The good news is we have an answer. Sonobello uses a remarkable technique called microlaser fat removal. In one comfortable visit, the fat in your hardest places to lose is gone permanently. Stop wrestling with your family genes and lose the fat permanently. And right now, you can save $250. The results are life-changing. Do this for you. Don't wait. Visit sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save. I have sleep apnea, and I used to struggle with CPAP. Until recently, I hadn't had a good night's sleep since 2005. Do you remember 2005? We used cell phones like actual phones, and everyone wanted life hacks. Here's a life hack for anyone who struggles with CPAP. Get Inspire. It's a sleep apnea treatment that works inside your body to give you comfortable, restful sleep. Learn more at InspireSleep.com. Inspire is not for everyone. Talk to your doctor to see if it's right for you and review important safety information at InspireSleep.com. This is A Different Perspective with Kevin Randall. Kevin is a retired United States Army Lieutenant Colonel who has studied UFOs for more than 50 years. His military training has provided him with unique insight into military operations and UFO research. Kevin has investigated many of the most mysterious cases and has been consulted for dozens of documentaries and been interviewed on hundreds of radio and television programs about UFOs. Considered to be one of the leading experts on the Roswell UFO crash, Kevin has written more than 25 books about UFOs including Roswell in the 21st Century and Encounter in the Desert, a re-examination of the Socorro UFO landing. Now here's the host of A Different Perspective, Kevin Randall. Welcome to this edition of A Different Perspective. I'm Kevin Randall. Before I introduce Ben Moss, who is the guest today, i got a couple of things I wanted to talk about. First, I want to thank again all of you who have bought a copy of the Best of Project Blue Book. This is a, an examination of the best cases hiding in Project Blue Book, but not just what was found in Blue Book, but if information was added much after the investigation had been concluded. So it brings, I guess, a different perspective to um, to the book. It is, of course, uh, been up and down on the Amazon bestseller list. And uh, for those of you who've got a copy or would like to get a copy, please uh, give us a rating and put a review in that. And before I start, uh, just a little bit of background on um, the Socorro UFO landing, which Ben and I are going to be talking about today. I got involved in writing Encounter in the Desert because of Ben Moss and his partner, Tony Angiola. When they were on the program before, they had mentioned that Three people had called the police station prior to Lonnie Zamora going out to see the landed craft. And I'd asked a couple of times during the program, did they look at the police records? Did they have the log? And never got a satisfactory answer. So what I did is I went back to the archives. I went back to the Project Blue Book files. I was looking for some information. And I discovered a report written by Captain uh, Richard Holder. He was um, an officer assigned to the White Sands Missile Range in 1964. He lived 
in Socorro as opposed to Alamogordo because his duty station at White Sands was closer to Socorro. He was involved within 90 minutes of Zamora seeing the thing, he and an FBI agent. And I mention this because in his report that he wrote that night after talking to Zamora and the police officers in the police station, he sent a report to the Pentagon, not a very long report, but encompassed in that report was a statement that uh, three people had called the police station prior to Lonnie Zamora's uh, call into them, kind of verifying what, what Ben and Tony had said on the program, which I found quite exciting because here was some documentation suggesting additional witnesses prior to Zamora being involved. Nobody bothered to find them and interview them, which is a real tragedy, but at least we had that information. And so I, I got excited about the case. The other thing I should mention about the Zamora case is it is one of only three, I believe, three cases in the Project Blue Book files in which the witnesses reported um, an entity, a being, some kind of creature, in which it was not immediately labeled as some kind of a psychological problem, meaning that they accepted what Zamora said. And Hector Quintanella, who was the chief of Project Blue Book at the time, investigating, labeled the case as unidentified, and later in his own memoirs wrote that he really hesitated um, labeling it as unidentified because he thought it would give the UFO hobbyists uh, something, something to throw up in the face of the Air Force. And he was sure that the answer to what Zamora had seen was somehow buried in his mind, meaning it was some kind of a misidentification, nothing that was a, a hoax or nothing that was delusional, but just something that he had misperceived um, and gave him that impression, which kind of ignores the physical traces left behind and all of that. Well, anyway, Ben Moss, who is coming up here, has written his own book about Socorro. We have now dueling books on that. His is called Not of This World, the Socorro UFO Landing with Humanoids. And what I want to say is Ben Moss is a native of Richard, Richmond, Virginia, and the son of the late Dr. John Langdon Moss and Barbara Moss, who was a registered nurse. Ben attended Forum, Forum College and the University of Richmond, majoring in psychology. Ben is an important UFO researcher and investigator. Previously, he was a field investigator for MUFON and later became chief field investigator for MUFON in the state of Virginia. He is also a, was a senior investigator for Euphora and was assigned, uh, assisted other UFO organizations in uh, research. Ben became interested in UFO mystery after watching Walter Cronkite's special on TV about UFOs. And I remember that special. I saw that as well. It was very interesting. As Ben continues to look into UFO cases, he continues his studies in the sciences such as physics, history, and religion in order to try to understand one of the world's most perplexing mysteries, the UFO enigma. Ben has appeared on several UFO documentaries and shows, including Hangar One on History, American Mysteries, and Lost Encounters on the Travel Channel. Ben will also appear this year in a new TV show that will cover the Socorro UFO landing case, also on the Travel Channel. And as I said, he's the author of Not of This World, The Socorro UFO Landing with Humanoids. If you want a signed copy, you can obtain it by reaching out to him by email, which is bmoss6 at verizon.net. We'll, we'll give that again here in, on the uh, show. And I'll, I'll put a link up on my blog as well at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. Well, now I've kept Ben waiting some six minutes to come on the show. So, Ben, welcome to A Different Perspective. Thanks, Kevin. Good to be back. It's been a while. It has been a long time, and we we have discussed Socorro a bit 
back and forth, but I think we'll, we'll be getting into it more in depth. Uh, just for the listeners who may not be completely familiar with the case, give me a, a, a quick rundown of exactly what happened. So basically, Lonnie Zamora was a police officer in Socorro, New Mexico, on April 24th of 1964. And he saw a speeder go by. I think he was on random patrol, but um, he was pretty sure he recognized it as a 17-year-old kid in the area. So he was hanging back a little bit, chasing the speeder. When he saw a flash uh, go over from um, to his right side of his car, like something was descending, um, a, a flame type of uh, brightness that something was descending into the aurora right there. And so he broke off the chase um, and went into this very difficult, especially in 64, to get to area where it took him three attempts to get up a hill. And as he crested the hill, he noticed something in the depression that had apparently, um, he thought it was a, an accident. His concern was because the dynamite shack was up there uh, in the direction of where, where this flash was that uh, something was going to blow up or somebody was in trouble. So as he crested the hill, he, he saw a white oval-shaped object. And as he got closer, he started to realize it wasn't an, an airplane or an overturned car or anything like that. And he noticed two... Um, beings standing next to it that were small and as he was as he was getting closer looking out the left side of his window uh, he got a pretty good look at these creatures which comes into play later but um, basically he got to a point where he couldn't see um, he heard a couple of loud slams um, he, he got out of his car and got close uh, went down to the vehicle uh, looking at this object uh, the beans had disappeared he heard a couple of loud slams and then a roar started up, um, a, a blue flame came out of the center of the craft, and Lonnie thought it was going to explode, so he kind of hit the dirt. He saw a symbol on the side of this white, oval, egg-shaped craft, and um, then the craft lifted up, and he kind of recovered, realizing it wasn't going to blow up, and he said it kind of, and there were people that gave me a little grief about this, but he says in several interviews that it sat there for a minute, so it did hover for a second, and then it started to proceed towards the perlite mill, going right near, nearly over the dynamite shack, clearing it by a couple of feet. And eventually, uh, as, it, as it lifted off, the interesting thing was the, the blue flame went off. There was no sound. Then it started traveling and apparently reached uh, supersonic speed and got out of sight in, in a matter of a um, couple of minutes, maybe estimation at maybe close to 700 miles an hour eventually leaving at that speed so you never had an opportunity to interview Lonnie Zamora himself that was my big regret I've talked to his daughter several times I've talked to all of his friends uh, Paul Harden and um, you know a lot of people that were there at the time I've been to score three times now but never got to meet Lonnie and uh, his mom was kind of I had bad timing I, I when I wanted to talk to her on a couple different times I think James Fox had kind of worn her out on his interview, but uh, she was well, a little we tired. Should, we, should, we should explain that James Fox did the uh, movie The Phenomenon, and he spent a great deal of time in Socorro talking to uh, Lonnie Zamora's family and was granted access to a great number of Lonnie Zamora's personal papers. Yeah, and uh, I, it's great that he covers that in the movie. I saw the movie, another great job by, uh, by James again with uh, The Phenomenon. But, um, yeah, the, it, it was just... I, I kind of wrote the book simply because I always meant to. And then after we were on your show and you wrote your book, I'm like, I'm just being lazy. 
So I wanted to write my book from just the perspective of our investigation and our whole experience with it and working with Ray Stanford, the original investigator that was there with NICAP and invited on site by Dr. Heineck in 64 and just kind of tell the story from the way I saw it and, um, you know, verifying almost everything you had in your book for sure, because there's a lot of data out there about this case. It's one of the most evidential cases in UFO in the U.S. history. And as uh, as um, my friend Ben Hansen said when we were filming recently in, in Instacoro, he said Lonnie was the perfect witness, which he was. He was very attentive. He never changed his story. His details never wavered. He was just a good witness. And I think that's why the case has always been an unknown and why uh, Hector Quintanilla was so perplexed about the case because he just couldn't break Lonnie down as to having had a hallucination or making it up. He wasn't a drinker. So it was, it was just uh, one of those things where you really come to the conclusion, as I think both of us did, that it wasn't one of ours. Well, I, I've always said it, it, the evidence doesn't suggest any kind of a terrestrial craft. I haven't found anything that's be suggestive of. I know that uh, the skeptics, some of them in New Mexico, suspected it was a mock-up of the lunar lander. Um, and, and there was some documentation, I guess, found at White Sands that suggested some kind of experimentation with a lunar lander was going on at that time at White Sands. Did, what did you make of all of that? Well, all the, you know, all the Rob Mercer files and all the files, they, they, the investigation in Blue Book dismissed the lunar lander pretty quickly because the, the only testing being done at the time was their testing integrity of the struts of the lander by dropping it from a cable attached to a Bell helicopter. And you wouldn't do that 30 miles off White Sands base in the middle of a public desert. And you certainly, you know, anybody, Lonnie certainly would have seen a helicopter because it wasn't flying on its own. The, the lunar lander had an engine that had this hydroxide combination of chemicals that had to be rebuilt after testing. And it was supposed to, you know, fire up in no atmosphere. So I put a whole chapter in there about the lunar lander just to dismiss that theory because it didn't actually fly by itself for a long time after um, Lonnie's incident. And it, the test of that day was canceled for the morning, and there was no test at 5.30 that evening. So the lunar lander was ruled out pretty quickly, plus it has round you know, landing pads, whereas the uh, triangular wedge-shaped landing pads of the Socorro craft were probably different. Well, and there was nothing in the uh, lander that would have uh, ignited either. It was a mock-up of the thing, and they were, as you said, we were testing the struts, so it'd be no reason to have any fuel on board, which would have created the flame that, uh, or the roar that Lonnie Zamora saw. Right. Uh, we're going to have to take a break here. Uh, when we come back, we'll get in a little dip, more depth of this. And I think the major uh, conflict between your theories and my theories has to do with the, with the symbol that Lonnie Zamora saw. And I don't want to get too deep into that minutiae because I think it'll bore everybody, but maybe you <laughs> and me. Uh, but we will talk about it and have some information about that um, coming up here. And I also wanted to mention that there's some other fine programs that we can find about the paranormal that we can find on the Exxon Broadcast Network. So take a listings on the Exxon uh, website, and there'll be a listing of the programs and the uh, hosts of those programs on that. And you'll probably find something that you'll find exciting or something that you want to listen to uh, as well. And as I say, I always produce or put up on the, my blog in um, a couple of days couple of hours after the uh, program here, some additional information and some links of places where you can go. And as I say, I'll put up a link to Ben Moss's um, 
email address in case you'd like to order a copy of his book um, and signed by him. I'll send him an email to get that. Uh, when we come back, we'll be talking more about the Zamora UFO case and uh, other UFO phenomena that, that moves us. You are listening to A Different Perspective on the Exxon Broadcast Network, and we'll be back right after this, so please stick around. family style deal because i want a bite of your big mac and i need some of your quarter pounds. i'll try your filet of fish there's a deal for every friend group at mcdonald's order any two classics for just six bucks price of participation may vary single item at regular price cannot be combined with any other offer i am joined by ben moss we are practicing social distancing he is not in the room with me we are not in the same state so we are well socially distanced we're talking about the 1964 landing in Socorro, New Mexico, observed by Lonnie Zamora, and apparently observed by other people as well. Uh, one of the things that, that uh, I wondered if you came across was the two guys from Dubuque, Iowa, who claimed that they had seen the object in the air. Do you do anything with that in your book uh, about their observations? I have the, uh, the article in there and, and mentioned that uh, they were found and interviewed later and their their stories didn't quite match up but they they seem to have been in the area at the time um, it's just you know it's kind of a it's like a lot of these cases you you, you can't really tell if they were there or not um, and, and subsequent follow-ups didn't really get anywhere but uh, I, I devoted a whole chapter to other egg-shaped craft that were seen before after and during this whole uh, encounter and and as you dig into it you realize that there are a lot of egg-shaped craft flying around at this time seen by military seen by police officers seen by people um the la madera thing is you know i always wanted to investigate the la madera case because it was so similar to socorro but I never had the time um well, that's me, either a hoax me, or, or a real deal it's just well, let me let me interject here because you brought up la madera and i was going to do that a little bit later these two guys from Dubuque, claimed that um, there had been a melted pop bottle on the landing site. That is a description right out of the La Madera case. It has nothing to do with Socorro. It's a whole right. different different case. And and to me, that suggests that they were just pulling um, evidence or pulling pulling observations out of the newspapers or the news media. The Zamora case was was reported wildly wildly on the wildly widely on the um, national news back in 1964 as well. I remember watching something about it on the news. So I'm thinking that they may not have even been in the area, but had picked these things up from what they had seen and heard from someone else and kind of incorporated it all into their sightings. I just don't have very much faith in their case, which does not negatively impact the Zamora case or the Lamadera case. It's just these two guys kind of in interjected themselves into the... Uh, this, the story, and, um, a guy named Ralph DeGraw in Iowa interviewed them some 10 years after the fact, and their stories had changed radically at that time, which is suggestive of them having, having been invented as opposed to being something they had actually seen. 
And I think that's important that we, we talk about that. And they, be, they become a footnote to the Socorro case, not unlike Gerald Anderson becoming a footnote to the Roswell case by his insertion of him into the case where he didn't, didn't belong. Right. Yeah, it's, uh, there's always, you know, it's kind of, the case is interesting because there were a lot of opportunities for people to gain notoriety or become famous or at least to milk a, a little bit. And none of that really happened. I mean, nobody, uh, certainly not with Lonnie, he was disgusted with everything. But uh, it, it's just very interesting that, you know, you have, I, I didn't really put much faith into those two guys at all. I just mentioned, the, I, I believe, the newspaper article about it. But, you know, when I really dug around and looked through, gosh, the Blue Book files that Rob Mercer found were 283 pages on, on Socorro. And so when you do a search and then on the Internet, I went through all the newspaper articles there were a whole lot of these things seen in the area at the time. So it wasn't a one-off like a lot of people thought about the case. There were a lot of uh, really reliable reports. And even when I started digging into the case, I've, I've been selling my book, and I had a guy reach out to me. He goes, oh, yeah, uh, I, I'm a police officer also. I, I came after Lonnie, but uh, I remember seeing that thing when I was a kid. I'm like, what? And so I kept getting stories like that that I, I didn't really put into the book, but I, I did put a few into the book where people had had encounters and we'd run into the woman, uh, the woman that had passed that saw the thing come down the river. She was sitting on her porch. She said she saw the, the craft coming down the river and banking towards where Opal Grinder had his encounter with it. So it's interesting that um, I, I kind of emphasize that being on site as many times as I was, I was able to talk to people that, the funny thing about Socorro is a lot of people have never left. A lot of people that were there in 64, they're still there. They still remember everything. And I couldn't find a single person that ever believed that it was a hoax. And um, a lot of people that were there at the time told me very interesting stories. And a lot of people said other people had seen it. But because of the way Lonnie was treated, they just weren't going to say anything about it. Just like you know the possibility that Sergeant Chavez saw it. But uh, I think initially that Lonnie and him thought they had seen a top-secret military craft that they weren't supposed to say anything about, and then later on realized that that wasn't the case. Well, you have to admit that when they were got back to the police station and they're met by an army officer and a FBI agent to interrogate them about what was going on, you can understand why they might have thought that it was some kind of a top-secret craft as opposed to something extraterrestrial or some, something else. Yeah, uh, I don't think they had come to that conclusion for a while. I, I do believe, though, that I in talking to uh, Lonnie's daughter and a couple of his friends, I do believe that Lonnie got a good enough look at the two creatures that he finally came to accept the fact that they weren't human, and and it really kind of changed his life. He, he, his his daughter said he became much much more quiet after that, but um, I think that he came because in one of his last interviews, I think it was two thousand eight on the show. Uh, either sightings or the UFO hunters, he said, you know, uh, I, that whatever those creatures were, I just knew they weren't from around here. And he very rarely said creatures until later in his life. Um, so I think he had come to terms with it, you know, before he passed, that he he was okay with it at that point. He just didn't care if anybody believed him or not. But, um, you know, the more you dig into the case, the more you find there's so much else going on in this area at that time that, it seems like it was kind of a mini flap of these spheroid-shaped objects occurring in and around these military bases. And you got a lot of military bases in this area. 
Well, let's move back to the uh, creatures for a moment. And I think this is important. Uh, Lonnie kind of denied he'd seen creatures and he kind of suggested that maybe he'd just seen white coveralls in the distance and really didn't describe them much. And I think that was a suggestion made, I believe, by Arthur Burns, who was the FBI agent. And it was not an attempt to cover up anything. Right. But to suggest to suggest to Lonnie that if he mentioned creatures, that the newspapers would have a field day with him. And a lot of the um, uh, skeptics would kind of make fun of him for seeing the creatures. And uh, I think I think that's a, a legitimate concern, especially in 1964. If we go back into that time frame and what was going on in the UFO field, where an awful lot of people were making fun of those who'd seen UFOs. The idea was that the average UFO witness was either drunk or a, a, a hick from the boondocks with three teeth wearing bib overalls and really uh-huh. couldn't identify the time of day, let alone something right. that would be alien. And when we do the research, we find out that the best witnesses are highly educated. They get a good look at the object. Um, they're able to eliminate a lot of the mundane things that might have confused them. So we have this perception that if you've seen a UFO, you're kind of a drunk or poorly educated or not the brightest bulb in the display. And yet when we interview the witnesses, many of the witnesses who are of of cases that are unidentified, we find out that the opposite is true. Yeah. Yeah. There was the, I mean, I I can't, without thumbing through my book, there was uh, the egg shaped craft was spotted by a couple of kids and then a police officer showed up and he saw it also. And we have the pilot report of him spotting it, um, you know, with the, some of the work that uh, Carl Lorenzo did. And, uh, you know, there are a lot of, it's funny how many people have investigated this case. And every time we, Tony and I took a look into it, we found something new. And it, it's just one of those cases that kept on giving up a little bit of data as you dug into it. But, um, you know, once uh, when Bob Mercer shared the, uh, the files he had found on Craigslist that belonged to Lieutenant Murano, that kind of open the door to how deep and wide this investigation was. They spent a lot of money and time investigating this case and, you know, obviously trying to figure out what it was. Well, I think we should point out that the, the files that Rob uh, Mercer had, and he's the, uh, an Ohio UFO investigator. He's been on the program, and, and those of you who are interested, you can search it on my blog, type in Rob Mercer, and it'll bring up the interview. And, of course, I interviewed Carmen Morano as well about it, about what, what these files were. And from what he said, they had created at Project Blue Book, was Car- Carmen Morano had said they had created a number of uh, files at Blue Book for use by the news media meaning they had taken the essence of specific cases and creating created another file for it so that uh, it would, uh, I guess, help the news media, help the reporters gather information in that, in that form. So uh, there was an official file, which we all have access to now through the Project Blue Book files that uh, are on microfilm or on um, um, uh, Fold 3. It's what I was fumbling for, Fold 3 on the Internet. I actually have a complete set, and I've mentioned this before, of the Project Blue Book files digitally enhanced on a, a external hard drive, which fits in my pocket, and it just cracks me up. I have the entire Project Blue Book files in something I can carry around in my pocket. 
so we looked at those sorts of things, and so we've got those files, and there's an FBI file on that, which will become important here in our discussion a little bit later on. I just wanted to return to uh, Opal Grinder for a minute, because you mentioned him as a witness, but he really didn't see anything, did he? Um, yeah, it was Opal Grinder's gas station. He um, A car pulled in with a family of five. Uh, it was like a couple and three kids in the back. I think they were from Colorado. And uh, the guy said, you know, you, you, you got some, your aircraft sure fly low around here. And he said, what do you, what do you mean? He goes, I almost got hit by some, uh, something. And, and Opal asked him, uh, was it a helicopter? And the, the witness said it was a helicopter. Sure, a funny looking one. And then the, the witness mentioned that he was, uh, it almost took the roof off his car, and then he said he saw a police officer going after it. And so he relayed all this to Opal Grinder, and I know that attempts to find those witnesses were never, you know, it wasn't followed up on right away. And so later on down the road, the guy probably, I don't even know if he knew it was a big story or even told anybody about it, but uh, never found those witnesses again. But it still ties into the fact that he witnessed Lonnie going after the craft after this thing had almost hit him. And it kind of leads me to believe that whatever this craft was, it, it maybe was in a little bit of difficulty because Lonnie did mention that the two beings seemed to be looking on the underside of the craft. So maybe it had to pull over, you know, for a pit stop and fix something. And that's why I was having trouble maintaining altitude when it almost hit this party of five from Colorado. I've always been bothered by that story, and, and it's because the story was national, and it went national quite quickly uh, in the newspapers and the evening news broadcast back in 1964 for the youngsters. We didn't have access to the Internet and all these other things that allows us to have alternative views of the news, better views of the news, worse view of the news. But it was all over the um, the three network news. news, And I was always bothered that the, the, they never came forward to mention, yeah, I was in that uh, that car. And I, it, it, it seems to me, and I can see it actually both ways, it seems to me that uh, when it became national news, they would have come forward and talked to somebody about what they had seen. On the other hand, knowing how people felt about people who saw UFOs, it may be they said maybe it's just better off that we don't say anything. But now we move into this environment and we had kids in the back car. The kids certainly could be alive. The parents could be alive in today's environment, even though it was so long ago. And we still have not found anybody. They, they haven't come forward to talk about having seen this thing back in 1964. And that always been a little bit worrisome to me. When we come back here in a moment, we're going to get into the uh, symbol that Lonnie Zamora saw and how Rob Mercer's files, the official Air Force files, and the FBI files come into play when we try to decipher exactly what the symbol that Lonnie Zamora saw was. And uh, as I say, I'm going to be cautious here because I, I fear we could get too deep into the minutia and people would say, well, we don't really care that much. But I think a symbol on an alien craft, if it in fact was an alien craft, is something important because it says something about the alien race that they would uh, put some kind of marking on the outside of their craft. And rarely in UFO sightings do we have anything like that. Although I'll mention quickly, there was a sighting in Texas where two women reported they'd seen a UFO and it actually said on the craft UFO. <laughs> so I, I, I fear they may have misperceived something there at that, at that rate. As I say, I am here with Ben Moss. We're talking about Socorro and Lonnie Zamora. His book is 
not of this world, the Socorro UFO landing with humanoids. You can get a copy at uh, by emailing him at benmoss6 at verizon.net. I'm sorry, bmoss6 at verizon.net. We will be back right after this, so please stick around. I'm tempted to let the music play a little bit longer to hear where it goes. And now we know. <laughs> I am joined by Ben Moss. We're talking about Socorro. And I've teased repeatedly. Uh, we're going to talk about the symbol. And so rather than drag that out any longer and keep people sitting on the edge of their seats, let's talk about the symbol, Ben. Um, yeah. Back in 1964, according to Lonnie Zavora, after the aircraft took off, he had seen the symbol on the side. He drew a copy on it, drew it, drew it on a scrap of paper so he could accurately represent what it what it looked like. Later on, when he was interviewed by both uh, Captain Holder and uh, Arthur Burns, the FBI guy, he drew a couple of illustrations of the craft, and on one of them he put the symbol, and he signed his name to it. This symbol is what I call the umbrella symbol, which was an arc with kind of a V shape underneath it and a line from the V down, looking, making it look sort of like an arrow with a line underneath it. I've always called it the umbrella symbol. Ben, when you were looking through the Rob Mercer file, which was the, the one that was been created for, I guess, used by the reporters who maybe showed up at Blue Book, we found a different symbol. What was that symbol like? I was inverted V with three bars through it, and um, and there's different interpretations of that symbol also. Uh, I got to admit, they did a good job of confusing people about the symbol and the fact that we're talking about it. <laughs> well, let, let's let's point out that Captain Holder had told some more. I think I've got it right uh, uh, that Barnes suggested not talk about the alien creatures. And Holder suggested that he not mention what the symbol looked like, the idea being not to suppress the information, but if others came forward and said they'd seen the same craft and the symbol on it, and if they could not describe or draw what uh, Zamora had seen, then they would know that it was somebody trying to trying to uh, get their 15 minutes of fame. Um, in the Air Force reports, there was any number of people wrote reports back... Um, there was a major that came down from Kirtland Air Force Base, and I forget his name. Connor, Major Connor, came down. He he produced a report. He had the um, umbrella symbol in it. Um, Ray Stanford wrote to uh, um, um, Dick Hall. <laughs> when you get old, names escape you. It wrote to Dick Hall at NICAP and suggested that there had been two symbols in play in the newspaper, one the umbrella symbol that I've talked about, one the inverted V that Ben has talked about. And in May of 1964, Ray Stanford said that the uh, symbol was the umbrella symbol. The other one was, was faked. Now, you've come to a separate conclusion. What has drawn you to the idea that the inverted V is the correct symbol? Well, um, there's... So, you know, it's not really important to, to as to what it was, I don't think, as much. But, you know, the fact that um, Ray had written down in his notes the inverted V of a three bars, the, the fact that it, this case got out in the paper so quickly that 
I think it's part of why the uh, the investigative team of the military couldn't clamp it down because you know the the Louis Riedel, the editor, was on the scene the next day, and a lot of data was shared, and the site was trampled, but. The symbol, the inverted V with three bars through it got out in the papers pretty quickly. And I know that from talking from James Fox, he kind of verified that when, I think it was uh, Baraka had written, had Baraka. drawn the craft for Lonnie and had put the inverted V with three bars on it and um, was told to erase it and later put the other symbol on that. But there's also, uh, I, I did you know, run across, there's a lot of evidence in the book that I used to support this, but I did run across a guy named Patrick Richard who had drawn the uh, picture of Lonnie's Moore uh, that hangs in the, in the uh, old police station that's now the museum in Socorro. And he had run into me from hearing about, um, he lived in Socorro at the time, he's an artist and a PhD archaeologist. And so he started talking to me about the symbol also, and I have this in the book, but he said he had finally got, he got Lonnie to have a cup, of, a cup of coffee with him a couple of times. And he actually brought up the symbol on, I think, his last visit. And um, it's kind of funny that Lonnie you know, usually didn't talk to people, and Patrick was kind of surprised that he was talking to him, but he, he had surmised that he was an okay guy. And the last time I think he talked to him, he drew the umbrella symbol and then the inverted V with three bars under it instead of through it and and pointed and turned it around to Lonnie and just asked Lonnie, you know, which one is closer to the real symbol or which one was the symbol. And Lonnie kind of nodded and looked away and pointed to the inverted V with the three bars and didn't say anything, but kind of just, you know, shrugged it and, and pointed down. And Ray and I kind of agree. I think that because Lieutenant Holder's son said that his father told him that he did have Lonnie sign a symbol that wasn't the right symbol. I think that that was a contract they had to just promote that symbol um, for whatever reason as the real symbol and that he would even lie to his wife about it at the end. I, I think when he told Patrick when he pointed the symbol out, it was the same year that he passed, I think. I think he, he knew he didn't have much time left. But there's a lot of other things that I uncovered where, you know, the, the, the I guess the dispatcher, you know, I can't speak Spanish. When they said in El Vito, the trades to Bajo or whatever, inverted V with three bars, that seemed to come out well before they started grilling Lonnie. And it was reported in the paper, and then I, I really never saw the, the other symbol until years later. So I, I just feel like the inverted V is more, and this is an interpretation, I just feel like it's, a, it's, it's pointing to the th thrust of the vehicle, it's pointing to that blue thruster, the three bars might be a symbol of radiation or danger, and it basically means don't, don't stand here, this is dangerous, or you'll get cooked, or it's maybe a symbol that just means there's something dangerous here. Um, well, me, that makes more sense to me than an inverted, than this umbrella. It just seems that a lot more people mention the inverted V with the three bars, and Dr. Hynek had it in the, in the records of the, uh, when James Fox and Ray Stanford went to the records and found Dr. Hynek's drawing with, air, with one line on top, one through the middle, one through the bottom. Still another version of an inverted V with three bars through it. And even some of the Blue Book notes mostly had the inverted V with three bars to it. So I let don't me, think it's really let, important which one is correct. It's, let it's, me complicate it a little bit more, because I can. Right. 
Heineck, Heineck produced a number of documents which, which had actually a number of symbols on it. Um, the one that they found, the one that Lonnie Zamora had, the scrap of paper that he signed was in the Blue Book files, which had the, the umbrella symbol on it. But here's the real complication. The um, FBI files, there's a long report in the FBI files that show that, that talk about Zamora. And I, I assume it's written by Burns to J. Edgar Hoover. So the question becomes, since Burns was the FBI guy on the scene and he knew what symbol was seen, and he included the umbrella symbol in his report to J. Edgar Hoover, do you think that a FBI agent would have lied to the director of the FBI about the symbol on the craft? I, You know, not knowing the whole, uh, how that was all transpired, I, I just... I, I couldn't say I, you know, I think ultimately it's not really as important what the symbol was, just the fact that there was a symbol and that's very rare in ufology. But, uh, you know, I, 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 with all the, you never know who's obligated to who to tell who about what, you know, there might've been uh, a possibility that this was kept for other reasons than what we're thinking about. I just don't see the the paper that Lonnie signed, any handwriting expert will tell you that Lonnie's signature is not the same person who drew that symbol, and that's you know that's kind of a weak argument, but I believe it's true. I don't think that's his writing at all. That was I think Dave Rudiak figured out that, that was a corner torn off of a boy's life in the police station that they had Lonnie sign because I found in the in the newspaper that Lonnie initially said he had drawn the symbol on the side of a paper sack. I got that right out of uh, the newspaper when I was in the archives there in Socorro. And I'd never heard that before. So I'm like, here's here's another version of how what he drew the symbol on. A paper sack became a Boy's Life magazine, became something that Lieutenant Holder's son said was not true. So I don't think we'll ever come to the conclusion as to what the real symbol was. I think it's more important that there was a symbol on this craft, which is very unusual, as our egg-shaped craft with you know, blue plasma type flames coming out of them. But uh, I know we're always going to agree to disagree, but it's uh, it's not as important as the whole rest of the story. Oh, absolutely. That's why I kind of wanted to stay away from the minutia, but I kind of wanted right. to discuss a little bit about the symbol because a lot of people are interested in what the symbol is. And and you're absolutely right that the, the, the landing is the more important part and the fact that he'd seen alien creatures and the fact that the government in the Air Force, the Air Force... Uh, Project Blue Book was unable to identify what he had seen. So I think that's important. Where's, um, well, I think what even more important than that are the landing traces that were found on the site. And so that suggests a second chain of evidence, I suppose you could say. First chain of evidence being Lonnie Zamora's observations. Second chain of evidence would be the landing traces left behind uh, by the craft. And there's been some discussion about that. Uh, tell me a little bit about the landing traces. Well, there, you know, it's funny because Ray and I, uh, we got into a little bit of a battle about the fused sand, which he he had never said existed. And, not, you know, there were documents that said that fused sand was taken from the area. But beyond that, the physical evidence was you had four indentations of a wedge-shaped um, landing gear that seemed to come in and leave at an angle. Um, the determination was the craft was estimated to perhaps be about nine tons to make these depressions because there was 
kind of moist, the soil was moist underneath the deepest part, which meant it dug in there kind of hard. Um, so the, uh, you have four landing impressions. You have this blue flame, which in apparently a couple of seconds when it initially lifted off, cut a, uh, what's called a greasewood bush in half, um, almost precisely as was described by, I think, Ted Jordan, like a blowtorch. But um, greasewood bush or greasewood bush is a very resinous plant, and you can't cook a bush like that with a two seconds by putting it, you know, unless you have a real high-energy type of flame on it. So the, whatever this propulsion was, it sliced this, this bush in half, and there were other traces left around. There was some metal that was scraped on a rock. That's a whole other story that's you know probably good for a separate episode. But you had no evidence of footprints. You had no evidence of vehicles having been in the area. There was no pyrotechnics. There was no kerosene found. There was, it, there was nothing that indicated that, except that some type of high-energy propulsion did play on the surface of this area, did probably... Um, give you some um, glass, you know, the sand turned to glass, which is about 2,200 degrees at a half hour, takes to do that. When you test that, that was done on um, on one of the TV shows. They tested how long it took sand to, to glaze into glass, and it was about a half hour at 2,200 degrees. But uh, you, there's just nothing indicating, when you dig into the case, there's nothing that indicates a hoax uh, or a misobservation. There is all this evidence that an unusual craft of an unusual shape with an unusual proportion landed in the desert and took off. Uh, there, there's really no evidence of anything else. Well, let me, let me say here that the Air Force took samples from the landing site, and they found no evidence of any kind of petrochemical gasoline, oil, whatever, that would have uh, created the heat. I believe Sam Chavez, who was second on the scene within minutes of the craft lifting off, may have seen it in the distance, may not, um, touched the bush and it didn't. Ha it was not hot, suggesting some kind of a, a different way of cooking the bush, I suppose you could say. Different type of energy. It, yes, uh, microwave energy or something like that. So we have the landing traces. There's no evidence that Lonnie Zamora hoaxed those. We've got photographs of those landing traces that appeared in the Project Blue Book files and pictures of the of the bush as well. So we have some interesting physical traces that kind of uh, 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 confirm that Lonnie Zamora had seen something strange in that area. Uh, we're going to have to take another break here. I'm talking to Ben Moss. His book is called, cleverly, The... Uh, not of this world, the Socorro UFO landing with humanoids. My book is Encounter in the Desert, which you can find at Amazon. I will have more information up on my blog here uh, soon so that you can link to that and uh, gather a little bit of this different information. And we will be back right after this. So please stick around. different perspective with Ben Moss. We're talking about Socorro. He mentioned we should talk about the radiation, but before we get into that, so Ben, keep the radiation in mind. I wanted to ask you one question. In your research, did you talk to anybody who saw the object itself 
uh, other than Lonnie Zamora, somebody that we have not heard about? Um, not directly. I talked to a woman um, who had told me the story about the, the lady who passed, who was sitting on her porch when she said, I saw that daggone thing coming right down the reservoir and then made the turn towards where Opal Grinder encounter happened. Um, I, I've had several people t tell me they saw uh, the same object, but um, it was just people that I've run into recently. So I've never actually talked to anybody that said they saw the object itself, no. And we had an opportunity when the uh, case first came into uh, public play with, with uh, Captain Holder and FBI agent Burns and the other people involved, the, the people had called in. I think they could have found those people, uh, even though the police dispatcher didn't take the names. They could have found those people because Socorro wasn't that big and they knew the path that it had followed. So they could have knocked on some doors and maybe found some additional witnesses, but nobody ever did that, which kind of annoyed me uh, looking at it from my perspective so far uh, in the future. Uh, you had mentioned to me... Also, the, the way they treated Lonnie, you know, I think uh, several of the police officers told Ray Stanford they saw the craft on other nights. And there was a reported landing near the reservoir I found out about. But because of the way Lonnie was treated, I think that the townspeople pretty much said, we're not going to tell anybody anything because we're not going to bring that heat down on ourselves. Yeah, I think that a lot of that goes on. And it, it's, it's hard to think back into the 1960s when that was kind of the prevailing attitude that if you saw UFOs, there was, you had a screw loose. Yep. And uh, it inhibited people. And, and I know in the military there was especially in the Air Force, there was some uh, prohibition against talking about having seen a UFO because if you had a high security clearance or you were in a very critical job, that kind of uh, observation could cause you to be rejected from your position or moved out of your position because you might be mentally unstable because you're seeing UFOs. Or drug tested. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think they were doing many drug tests back then, but yeah. uh, alcoholism would have been a big, big problem yeah, at that perfect. time. Um, you had mentioned to me and I will bring it up since I said I would. Um, radiation, radiation on the site. Yeah, the uh, the the fact that um, I do have the video that uh, Ray shared with me of of uh, Dr. Hynek saying on film that the film was fogged by radiation that Ted Jordan took, and Don Burleson wrote an excellent article for the MUFON Journal that I have in my book. Uh, he allowed me to use talking about how unusual it is for this half-life to be in the four to six hour range. So I have a really good article in the book reprinted uh, by Don Burleson about radiation and, and why this is unusual. And then in 2016, when Tony Angiola and I were speaking at the MUFON Symposium in Orlando, a gentleman walked up to me and started talking to me. And that's the second part of this chapter in my book that he turned out to be a guy named Mark Moore, a physical scientist, um, very smart guy, multi-degreed. Um, he is a, was a, also a radiation specialist. He had run into Lonnie Zamora in a gift shop in um, Socorro in 1998, I think. And they saw, this woman saw the badge he had on and says, I want you to talk to somebody. So they brought Lonnie over, and Lonnie started talking to Mark and found out he was all involved in radiation. And so Lonnie took Mark Moore out to the site, described everything that happened, and told Mark, he said, my, my car was actually here. I didn't tell him this at the time, but I was closer than what I said I was. And I know this is just a story, but everything checks out with Mark. 
But the fact that uh, Lonnie took him out there and was asking him, do you think I got a dose of radiation, showed that even in 1998, Lonnie was concerned that he got radiated by this object, by this blue flame. And Mark said he took a sample. He took uh, samples of the soil and everything and tested and didn't find anything. But he, he told Lonnie, he said, look, this happened in 64. You would have had certain symptoms by now. If you don't have cancer and you know, lose your hair, you know, you probably didn't get a dose of radiation. But it just further uh, supports the fact that Lonnie was very concerned that he did get a dose of radiation by being really close to this blue flame. Um, Heineck had talked about well, Heineck had talked about the fog film being fog, but I was going to say um, one thing that we have not made clear is Lonnie had made radio calls about the object and what he was seeing. So Sam Chavez, who was his friend, showed up almost immediately after the object took off. But there were a number of other law enforcement officers, both state police and others, who showed up. And one of the guys who showed up had the, the camera and, and was taking the photographs. And it was his film that was fogged. So once the call went out, there were a lot of people that showed up within, literally within minutes of, of the event taking place. And then Lonnie went back to the uh, police station. And I don't know whether Halder... Holder called Burns or Burns called Holder, but somehow both of them showed up to talk to Lonnie about what he had seen and interrogated him that night. The Lorenzans, I think, showed up, I think, on Sunday. They did not show up the next day. They showed up on Sunday to talk with them. And there's a big article about what they observed um, or what they what information they got in the April Bulletin for May of 1964. Uh, Don Berlinson's article in the MUFON Journal. Do you do you know what issue that was? What month or what year? Yeah, I uh, let me right here. It's uh, it's a really good article because he just kind of explains how unusual it is for this to be uh, this radiation. Let's see, I'm almost there. Uh, that's for the people who have MUFON Journal. I'll put a. I'll also put a note up on my blog to link you to that. And once, while well, while Ben is searching for that, the blog is www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. And as I say almost all the time, uh, once the program is over, I put up a brief synopsis of it, a link to the um, to the program so that you can listen to it again or listen to it for the first time, and some other links to information that you can find about the case that uh, might be relevant. Yeah, I have a link in the book here. It is, let's see. So while you're looking for that, what we have then is a case. I was, well, I was going to say, I was going to ask you, and I don't have a lot of time left. I was going to ask you about some of the um, explanations, the hoax explanations have been offered and, and what we, what you have found about those. Uh, yeah, the, they're really, once you dig into the hoax explanations, they all fall apart. Um, there were a lot of people that claimed it was a balloon. Uh, that was pretty easy to dispute because of the winds coming out. This object went into a stiff 45-mile-an-hour wind and uh, you know took covered many miles in a very short distance. Um, you, you have an object that is blowing a flame straight down into the ground. A balloon blows it uh, straight up, so... Uh, also, I did check with the, um, the I think the National Balloon Museum is in Albuquerque, but I talked to them and they said, you know, you just wouldn't launch a balloon in those kind of conditions at that time of night um, with the front moving in. And so uh, there was no hallucination. There was no weather event that would tie into it. 
there was no uh, the, the own the blue book investigation went everywhere. I mean, as you said, Hector expected to find this craft sitting in a hangar somewhere. The fact that the the internal investigation didn't turn up any black project. Captain Holder knew everything that flew out of White Sands. There was no project for that day. In fact, a lot of the radar was turned off at the time. But there was no vertical takeoff vehicle capable of doing what this craft did. And as I said in my book, you know, if this was a black project, there were many opportunities for the government to come out and go, hey, we fooled you. Sorry, this was this project that we had in 1964. Or if it was a foreign adversary, they would go, hey, that was one of ours. We really, we really got you back then. But th that's never occurred. It's interesting that the, the government had pr probably several opportunities to lie about case closed or to come up with some other story. And they never did because there was nothing that matched the parameters of the characteristics of this vehicle. So to this day, there's still nothing that we fly that could match the characteristics of an egg-shaped craft with no visible means of propulsion once the uh, blue flame apparently lifts it off the ground. That's why I probably had one engine to land and take off, cut that one off. The other engine takes, takes over, which was completely silent, kind of like what we use when we go to other planets. One engine to get us there and one engine to land. Quickly, quickly, I have to ask you, Philip Glass claimed at one point this was an invention by the mayor of Socorro and Lonnie Zamora to create a tourist attraction in Socorro. Did you look into that at all? Yeah, the, he didn't even get the owner right. The mayor didn't even own it. The the That never happened. They they It never became a tourist attraction. They built a second site that nobody goes to, uh, the, the original site's very hard to find now, but uh, that never happened. There was no marketing event. Uh, you know, they did make that phenomena 7.7 .7 film, which nobody can seem to find. But uh, that's completely bogus. Uh, he also said it was Venus at one time. So uh, Philip Class was just, he was good for a laugh. Well, he also said that there was a guy who owned a house close by and that he had... Uh Heard, heard the object, and uh, he looked up at the site, or he walked up to the site, and there was nobody there, which I found completely ridiculous, because from what, what I found, what you've obviously found, is from the morning, moment that Zamora saw the craft, that site was occupied late into the night. Uh, Holder brought his MPs in to cordon off the area, and they put rocks around the landing traces and things like that, so there was somebody on the site for literally hours after the event, Yet this guy claimed he, he was up there and he couldn't find anybody standing around. So I found that kind of interesting as well, which also seems to um, eliminate part of Philip Class's argument. Yeah, you know, uh, he's an, he was kind of an armchair debunker. I, I think he just would look for any type of explanation except for what, what it was. Um, it's funny because Ray told, told me a story where when Ray showed Phil Class one of his photographs, that Phil said, I think you may have something there, Ray, but don't tell anybody I ever said that because I'll never admit to it. <laughs> well, well I found Phil Class to be quite charming and personable when you weren't talking about UFOs, but when you yeah. moved into that arena, he became very nasty at times and uh, did some really nasty things, which uh, Robert Schaefer and I discussed on a program not that long ago. Well, when you're on the CIA budget, you know, you got to... You gotta... <laughs> 
I gotta be nasty. <laughs> well, let's let's point out that I know you're joking, and I'm pointing that out for those of you who don't realize he's joking about that. Uh, ben, I want to thank you for taking time to come on the program. I know we disagree on some aspects of the Zamora case, but that those disagreements are very trivial, uh, like the, the symbol, for example. And I know we disagree in a, the political arena, and I'll only mention that. Uh, not say whose side you're on and whose side I'm on. We just disagree on the political arena and let it go at that. Your book, of course, is called, cleverly, uh, Not of This World, The Socorro UFO Landing with Humanoids. You can get a copy signed by emailing Ben Moss at bmoss, that's a lowercase b, lowercase moss, ben, bmoss6 at verizon.net. I will put that uh, in the... Uh, Posting on my blog for those of you who'd like to read Ben's take on the Socorro case. Thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Ben, for being on Thanks, the program. Thanks, Kevin. It's a, always a pleasure talking to you. You have a good day. You do the same, um, sir. Thanks. Next week, I think we're going to have a treat, and it's going to be Colonel Richard Weaver. He is uh, the guy who wrote, who was ramrodding the uh, Roswell case for the Air Force. Took me a minute to get that out for some reason. I was I was thinking ahead that uh, I'm his book is up on Amazon for those of you who wish to read it. I've been reading it. There's some things that I want to discuss with him. He and I have discussed this um, both verbally and through email quite a bit. I think you'll find it an interesting program getting his take on what was going on in his arena, and I can give it my take of what was going on in my my arena and how we. Um, agree and disagree about aspects of the Roswell case. I over I looked at some of this in Roswell in the 21st century, especially about Project Mogul, which is the real bugaboo in this case that, that I think is, I guess, the red herring. It, it, it just doesn't work for me, but that's the official explanation from the Air Force at this time. If you have comments you'd like to make or questions you'd like to ask, append them to the, the uh, end of the uh, posting on the show with Ben Moss and I'll see if I can get the questions asked to uh, Colonel, Colonel Weaver. I think you'll find that interesting. And as I say, uh, my book is Encounter in the Desert. It's about the Socorro case and my investigation into it and what I found about Lonnie Zamora and what, uh, looking at it from, well, a different perspective, I guess I should say. Um, you have been listening to A Different Perspective on the Exome Broadcast Network. I'll be back in about 167 hours, depending on the exact timing. Thanks for tuning in and talk to you next week.